This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Letter to David Carson from Tibor Kelman, 1995. Dear David, I am sorry about the end of print. It was nice while it lasted. I always liked the smell of Mimeo copies, and you could always tear out the pages after you read them. I'll miss the subjectivity, the imprecision. But I am ready, I think. Could you blow this up really big and print it in the wrong color and tell everybody to go back to school and to remember that form ain't worth a shit anyway and that content ideas, you big bunch of jerks, rules? Make that part red or something, okay? Much of the criticism Letter to David Carson, Carson from the Ed Fella, November 22nd, centered on whether A, Hi, he had any radical original Here's an unabashed found, fan letter for you due to my being blown away this weekend B, in a bookstore and seeing your design the for the large circuits, photo book cyclops entertaining us with, with cool graphics while selling stuff. It's an absolutely amazing both, piece of and work such a position and stands totally alone fate as an utterly unique idea rather and execution also in the late 20th that can only be done once was somehow rarely accepted as a credible position I'm sure by orthodox design critics. I'm sure it up in history that any as designer an original in-book design and I nominated as book of the year. So perhaps slick corporate and media design has on occasion been pushed back a little or covered up as a result of the academic and his followers loosening up the boundaries of graphic design, but the change is often illusory. It is the nature of large business interests to be conservative. They regroup against attack, they subvert the threat, appropriating it to their cause if possible. This process has at times perhaps taken place in the rapid swing of Carson's work. Indeed, he himself led the move from subculture to corporate But the expression of some of his work at its most unfettered is an act of rebellion and reaction or resistance that can never speak the language of big business simplification. Rather, like the arrival of remixing and music, a technological tribute and extensive potential unleashed by jazz or outsider art stimulating fine art A reaction to art becomes remote from A choice emerges from a whole new area of practice. It was the kind of graphic expressionism is celebrated in Wittenberg print has helped define an alternative to lockdown rationalism in graphics. It was always there, but it took something quite excessive to really define the position. And find that, yes, it did take the profile, which you would have just expected if necessary, to include any strange new elements in the work. simple information transfer will be affected by some other electronic means. Print will no longer be obliged to simply carry the news. It will be given, or have taken in this case, its freedom, and there's no going back. Print is reborn. Resurrected is something initially unrecognizable. It's not really dead. It's simply mutated into something else. 
Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am Debbie Millman, and I have a very unusual show for you today. Originally, we were scheduled to have David Carson, who actually asked us to be on the show, and this morning I found out that he couldn't make it, and naturally, I was devastated. But rather than cancel the show, I decided to make lemonade out of these bountiful lemons. You see, this was not my first interview with Mr. Carson. This is actually my second. My first interview with him was actually done over the phone for my forthcoming book, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. So in an effort to make good on my promise to bring you David Carson this afternoon, I will read the interview over the air. My dear friend and colleague and creative director at Sterling, Simon Lentz, will be asking the questions, sort of Debbie style, <laughs> and I will read David's answers verbatim. And this I is wrong on so many levels, This Debbie. should make for a very, very interesting hour, so here we go. Well, for the benefit of everyone listening, I'd just like to say that uh, I'm looking especially gorgeous today, <laughs> <laughs> but I've got a bit of a hoarse throat, so please excuse the, the roughness there. Anyway, let's start. David. It's a great privilege to welcome such a highly esteemed designer in our midst. <laughs> um, tell me, when did you know you wanted to be a designer? When I turned 26, I took a summer workshop at the University of Arizona with a professor named Jackson Bolt. It was a two-week workshop on graphic design. I was teaching high school at the time. I have a degree in sociology, and I had gotten a little postcard in the mail announcing this two-week graphic design workshop. I read it, and it sounded interesting. I thought, wow, that's a profession, and you can make a living? It sounded fun. I had the summer off, and for some reason, it felt like something I needed to do. So I called the university, told them I was a teacher, and that I wanted to take the course. They said, sure, come on down. And I left, and at the end of the two weeks, the proverbial light went off. This is what I wanted to do. It couldn't have been any clearer. It changed everything. And uh, can you remember why you wanted to be a teacher in the first place, and uh, why sociology? Sociology was interesting to me. I majored in it, and I graduated with distinction. But I really didn't feel like doing social work. My parents actually wanted me to take business courses. They were convinced I was going to end up in business. But I took sociology instead because I found it interesting, and then decided it might make sense to teach it. Plus, I had the summers off and good hours, so I could surf a lot. All things that aren't good reasons to go into teaching. So does that mean you have a master's degree in teaching? I have a BA and a teaching credential. I'm credentialed for life in California to teach <laughs> grades 1 through 12. So I always have something to fall back on if this graphic design business doesn't work out. So let me get this right. You took a two-week graphic design course, and you just came out with this deep feeling this is something you needed to do? Completely. Yeah. Do you, so do you ever look back on that and think, well, what if I didn't take that course and how different things would have been? Oh, yeah. Um, although you could say that about any moment in life, can't you? I'm a big believer in the chain of events, and if you change one thing, everything can change. But certainly, if I had not taken that one course, if I had a completely different instructor in that course, we wouldn't be talking today. My life would be completely different. Mm. So um, do you think that just you know, becoming a designer later on in life, does that, do you think that influenced the way you approach design? Or, or just your abilities to do design, even? You must be coming at it from a different point of view at that, that sort of age. Absolutely. I wouldn't consider it late in life, but it was definitely a second career. However, in my particular case, I never learned all the things I wasn't supposed to do. I just took a workshop, then enrolled in a class for a couple of months, got an internship, and basically have been in the field of graphic design ever since. So where did you do the uh, internship? 
I interned at Surfer Publications in Dana Point, California. After the two-week workshop, I decided that's it. This is what I really want to do. So I quit teaching and enrolled in a design course back in San Diego State University where I had graduated. I was there for maybe a month when I got a letter from my grandmother who still lived in Southern Oregon. She had always been very supportive of me. She was probably the only person in my family that was supportive of me getting out of, it, out of teaching and doing something else. So she wrote me about an art college in Ashland, Oregon. She told me if I was really serious and wanted to go full-time, she'd pay for me to go. So I up and quit San Diego State and moved back to Oregon to attend this little art school full-time. At that point, I had a friend who was an editor at Surfer Publications. They published a few different magazines, Powder, Ski Magazine, Skateboarding, Surfing, and a few others. Anyhow, my friend suggested that I send some of my assignments to his art director. So I hounded this art director and sent him every little project I would never think to send anybody now. But I basically harassed the poor guy. And at one point he said something to me, something to the effect of, well, you know, I've got this one assistant who I'm not very happy with. There's a chance I might be getting rid of her. So I stay in touch. So stay in touch. You never know that kind of thing. So with that, I quit art school and moved back to San Diego and called the guy and said, I'm here. And he said, what? And I think partly out of guilt, he allowed me to set up in the corner of his art department a little art table and start interning for free. And he would feed me little quarter-page ads to do for the magazine. And of course, this was all cut and paste. And I've been designing ever since. Let's talk about your style for a minute. I mean, it's undeniably, undeniably original and it's innovative. And when you think about it, it really has changed the face of graphic design in, in so many ways. Um, where did that style come from? Well, for me, it wasn't an attempt to do all that you just said. <laughs> well, I'm not the only one who's uh, said it. You know, lots of people have the same opinion. Well, I think that I'll tell you, um, all right, I'm saying that this was not the starting point. I think part of it came from my lack of schooling and not knowing what I wasn't supposed to do. And with my interest in sociology, I'm always curious to know how people react to things emotionally. I never learned anything about grids or different schools of thought. I read somewhere years later that what I did was called deconstructionism. And I thought, aha, so that's what I've been doing. <laughs> For me, I had no real starting point other than to read the articles I was designing and try to interpret them visually. And so I would read a piece and I would get a sense or a feeling from it. It's happy, it's sad, it's angry, it's pissed off, etc. And then I would try to express that with the design. I think I have an eye or a way of looking at things that, for who knows what reason, worked especially well in those venues. I've just always designed trying to interpret. I'm always experimenting. Ralph Kaplan once said that I was experimenting in public, which was the most dangerous kind of experimenting. A lot like this interview, actually. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's true. I would try different things. One issue, some of it would work, some of it wouldn't. Then I would try something else and another issue. Some of it would work, some of it didn't, and then another issue would come along. But I just did what made sense to me, and I wasn't following anything that I hadn't been taught because I hadn't been taught much. Well, do you think that uh, this kind of non-education, so to speak, uh, was it like a disadvantage to you? Yeah, but I mean, I decided, besides experimenting in public, um, absolutely. And uh, I think that it's going to 
probably take me a while to describe that. So um, maybe we should take a commercial break now. You got it. I'm ready for a break. You're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, i.e. moi, on the Voice America business. We have an unusual show today, isn't it? That you've figured out by now. One that defies actual explanation. We will be back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Four hundred ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth—we cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Honest is a design studio that works in a variety of media. Carrie Murnian and John Balot started the company so that they could collaborate on projects together. Carrie, John, tell us a little bit about how you work. I think a lot of our ideas are generated from our personal projects. You know, we got into film by doing little things on the side, you know, with our camera here. And we hope that freshness actually is imbued into the commercial projects because that's what makes them different and everything else. So you know, even if you do the most boring job that you can, you know, put something creative into it, you know. You can you know, choose like a fun typeface or, you know, something as kind of small as that that gives you a little bit of pleasure. I think you can always add like a little bit of fun to any project. Yeah. And that's kind of what we try to do. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Carrie and John talk about how they were influenced by old school design. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masala. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Mom, my tooth fell out. The coach says I can play shortstop. I get to be a deciduous tree. You live for the first in your child's life. But how do you cope with the first that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It's 317 Eastern Time, and you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. Um, I'm your host, uh, don't be alarmed. <laughs> I'm not actually Debbie Millman. I'm Simon Lintz, but I am pretending to be Debbie Millman for the next few minutes. And I'm pretending to be David Carson. <laughs> I'm we, actually, <laughs> we're having a conversation about David Carson, and it's very confusing. Stay tuned because it will make sense, I promise you. Well, basically what we're doing, to let our listeners know that might just be tuning in, uh, Mr. Carson canceled at the very last minute, and I know that I promised everybody David Carson, and to make good on the promise, I am reading with Simon verbatim the interview that is going to be included in my forthcoming book, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer. 
It'll be published by Allworth Press in October of this year. A little self-plug. I've never done that before on the air. feels kind of weird. But in any case, this is the actual interview that I uh, conducted with David uh, in December. Actually, no, we did it in January, and it was taped, so it is verbatim. But I've had it transcribed for the book, and so Simon and I are reading this to you as it was spoken. So you hear it directly from us. So it's not a typical show by any means, but our lines are still open. So if you, if you want to call, please call in. Uh, the number's 1-866-472-5790. Simon, I think you're doing such a marvelous I'm job. I'm liking as it. As a host, <laughs> and I think that there's some more of this in your future coming. I'm, I'm, totally, I'm having flashbacks to an episode of Will and Grace. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting way too familiar. Actually, isn't that true when, when Jack uh-huh. was doing the uh, Just Jack? No, Jack Talk. Jack Talk. <laughs> Karen was his, uh, was it Karen his co-host? Yeah, Karen was his co-host, and then they wanted her to take over. No, she was going to be a guest, and then they wanted her to be the co-host, and then they wanted her to take his uh, position. I must, I must be thinking of the Golden Girls. I've got my sitcoms <laughs> muddled up there. <laughs> anyway, back to David. And Let's Jeff. get back to it. Okay. So where were we? We were kind of, uh, we were talking about your non-education, so to speak, and whether you really felt that was a, a disadvantage to you. Well, work-wise, I think it proved to be a real advantage. A disadvantage would be, although I don't think it's that big as this. I remember attending a workshop in Switzerland. This was while I was doing the skateboard magazine. I had this wonderful trip around Europe and ended up at this three-week workshop in Switzerland. At the opening cocktail party, there were groups of people all dressed in black, all discussing various theories and movements and designers. And I realized that I couldn't get in on any of the conversation because I had no idea what they were talking about. But there was a part of me that liked being the outsider. So if there's a disadvantage, I have a general lack of a really good history of graphic design and various schools of thought. But I don't really feel that this has been harmful. But people like to, in in certain academic circles, they like to discount this. They believe that someone can't be a good designer without a degree from here or there. You know, mine is no doubt an unusual route, but it's a definition of good luck. And my definition of good luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I got to skateboard magazine and beach culture instead of golf magazine or auto mechanics or Reader's Digest. So when you came up with your style? Uh, I never remember a time of coming up with my style. It was always a work in progress, and hopefully it still is. Initially, I worked with skateboarders. To me, that demanded a certain approach, and it also gave me a certain amount of freedom. Afterward, when I went to beach culture, I encountered a slightly different audience. It was no longer a hardcore skate group. The magazine covered world-renowned musicians and published serious travel pieces. My approach stayed the same, keeping in mind the subject matter and the audience, but I remember sitting down and thinking, okay, I want my style. I don't remember sitting down and thinking, okay, I want my style to be this, or what am I going to do to make that happen. I never said, now I'm just going to make things hard to read, or now I want to try and piss people off. I've just always tried to do what made sense to me, and then other people reacted strongly, both positively and negatively. But then how do you evaluate your own work? You know, when you're looking at your own stuff, how do you know if you've done something that's good or successful? If it feels right to me, then it's done and it's good. Can you describe that feeling? That's a tough one. I tend to print out a lot of things. When I'm working on one thing, I experience a gut feeling regarding what works and what doesn't. That is the initial level. But there is more than this. It's not just a, oh, that looks cool, this feels right, this feels good. The work also has to be reinforcing the message. 
keeping the audience in mind and understanding what your motivation is. I've done work for Microsoft, I've done work for Nine Inch Nails, and for Surfer Magazine, and the approach is the same for all of them. I can look at something from Microsoft and say, yeah, that one works, I'm happy, that feels good, that looks done. But that might not work and probably wouldn't have worked in a beach culture magazine. It's a different audience. I always keep that in mind. It's not a matter of simply saying, that looks cool. You have to have what I call, for lack of a better word, the eye. And if you don't have it, I'm not sure you can ever learn it. I think that's why teachers like to dismiss my work. It's intuitive and it's objective and that's hard to teach. You can teach anybody to do a reasonable business card or a reasonable newsletter, but if you say to the same group of people, I'm going to play a CD and let's interpret what the cover should look like, most people would be lost or come up with something very generic. Very few people would come up with something amazing. And this is the area of design that intrigues and interests me more than the information architects. I believe you can't really do graphic design. If you can't really do graphic design, then you can become an information architect. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to take a break there because I think we have a caller. Uh, Rich. Thanks for calling. Rich, are you there? Yes, I am. What's your question for, <laughs> for any of us? <laughs> You're very brave. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe you guys can comment on what I wasn't paying attention to design so much at the time when David Carson first came out and your perception as contemporaries of his of like the, the work he had at the time. I mean, obviously it was revolutionary, but I think there were camps that were, you know, very enthusiastic and then there were camps that were very opposed to that. And so kind of what, just kind of where were you guys and what were things that you were hearing at the time? And then also, obviously his style's been uh, picked up and used and modified by tons of people. What do you think in the long term, project out 25, 50 years from now, what do you think the long term impact of his design style is going to be on the tra um, on the trade and craft of graphic design as opposed to maybe the internationalists or uh, Bauhaus era and all that sort of thing. So I'd love to hear your comments. Sure. Thank you for calling. You want to take this one first, Simon, or do you want well, me I to go? Some, I certainly have some thoughts. I Why mean, don't you start and then I'll come in. Well, for me, I, I can remember seeing that work for the first time and I always get really excited every, t every time I see something you know, for, the, for the first time and it sort of shakes up all your kind of understanding and expectations and you totally try to rationalize it, but it kind of, it takes that kind of um, feeling of being uncomfortable with work that actually forces you to almost be alert again. You know, we all get so comfortable in what we do. And so I really have a lot of respect for the people who are able to kind of disturb uh, the, the landscape as it was. Um, I think long term, you see how that work kind of influences designers worldwide. You know, you start to see little bits of that trickling into uh, publications and to um, other media. And it's a, it's, a, it's a slow thing, and it, a, lot of, a lot of times it doesn't appear until maybe 10 years after the fact. But it's these people that are actually just making, it, making us see it for the first time and challenging um, what we sort of take as being the normal. David, do you want to add to that? Yes. Um, well, let's see. First of all, in as much as, as David's work is um, certainly... Uh, revolutionary. Ed Fella is really his precursor, um, and I think that he would be the first to say that he owes a lot to Ed. Um, 
I think that his work touched many, many, many people in a way that few people have touched a mass designer and general public audience in a very for a very long time. Um, I think that he did work that was unique in that almost anybody that saw the work wanted to have been able to do that work. You know, there are certain designers you look at and you think you can appreciate it, you understand it, you like it, but you don't necessarily get intensely jealous at not having been able to come up with it. And I think that a lot of people felt that way when, when they looked at his work. There are a whole group, there's a huge group of people, though, that when his work first came out, academics, that thought that it was utter garbage, that it was um, completely undisciplined, completely without merit, because it wasn't um, coming from a, a, a strong provenance and understanding of design. Um, you see the same thing is happening in fashion and but in exactly, art. Exactly. Exactly you know, the same principle. One right? of my favorite favorite um, quotes is, you know, well-behaved people rarely make history. You know, I think in order to really do something important, the general um, response is, is one of utter horror that somebody's even coming up with this thing. I mean, even Einstein had that when he first came out with many of his theories of relativity. He was... He was um, ostracized by, by many scientists and that right. still happens now as far as the long-term value of his work um, I think that he opened up the grid he destroyed the grid in a way that will be something that stays with us from here on in I mean I can't imagine oops looks like we lost our caller Richie you still there no we lost yeah. our caller in any case to finish my thought um, I think that uh, we will forever see the ramifications of the grid being destroyed in the way that, that David saw it. So let's go back to our interview. Let's talk about what David thinks. Oh, we were talking about, I finished off before we finished the question that you had previously asked, which was, was how do you, how do you, you feel? describe the feeling? Yes. So David continues, I find that some of my best work has come from accidents. And that doesn't mean if something is an accident that it is automatically good. It means that you need to be open to things you're not expecting as you are working. Maybe something falls on the ground or something comes in the mail and there's a great stamp or marking. Um, years ago when there was a lot more, there were a lot more computer mistakes. Again, that doesn't make it good, but I think the key is to be as open as possible as you are working and not be so locked into your grid. Ah, funny that we we're talking about grids. And your final solution. Sometimes it is better not to know exactly where you're going. Uh, I remember I was on a video shoot for a singer-songwriter, David Garza. While I was on the shoot, I was doing what I'm always doing, taking photos, just little snapshots usually with point-and-shoot or throwaway cameras. I shot a lot of images in a field we were filming in, and I was laying down on the ground taking shots in the weeds, the grass, and the wildflowers. And I turned the roll in to one of those one-hour developing places, and they called me back to tell me that a new guy had just started working there, and he used the wrong chemicals and it ruined the entire <laughs> roll of film. And they offered me a new roll of film as compensation, but they didn't want to give me the ruined film, and eventually I talked them into showing me the photos. I had a feeling something was there, and they were great. They were all greenish, fuzzy color. They were really wonderful. I didn't have any use for them at the time, but one of those images ended up being the back cover of the Nine Inch Nails CD, The Fragile. 
So maybe that says enough. So we're uh, going to go to break now. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business with our very unusual show talking about David Carson instead of with David Carson. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Carrie Murnian and John Malott of Design Studio Honest. Carrie and John, tell us about coming from old school design. We went to Parsons together here in New York, and we were the last class that they taught paste ups to. And at the time, we kind of knew this is going to be obsolete, you know, soon. But yeah, it still, I think, informed us in terms of some of our design skill. I think that's something that we try to keep in all of our work is that there was a hand like a real hand involved rather than just completely this, you know, computer design thing or yeah. computer, I don't know, animated thing. And that whole thing of a sketch first, you know, at least you know, get the idea going and then you can start the real creative process after that. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Carrie and John talk about inspiration. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. You know, when you talk about jazz, most people think of the blues. But Matisse, Bearden, Lawrence, Stuart Davis, and other 20th century masters inspired by this music saw a whole range of colors. For me, jazz is a visual medium. And maybe nobody proves that better than Nicholas Troxler, who spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. Now you can hear it from the man himself, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's acoustic, Masaba. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the most noble city of New Orleans, Saturday, March 10th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in the House of Swing. Go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime event and see how Troxler saturates his work with the rhythmic energy of pulsating swinging jazz music. Hi, I'm Ron Jeselowski of Del Monte Foods Corporation, and I'm here to invite you to attend the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design Conference this April in New York City. You might have heard of the Bad Boys of Design segment on Design Matters podcast, but now you can see it in person. The Fuse event is proud to announce their own version of the show, the Bad Boys of Brand Design, as the official kickoff to the 2007 event. Join me along with others from Colgate-Palmolive, Starbucks, Johnson & Johnson, and Georgia Pacific, as we discuss how design can be aligned, leveraged, managed, and integrated to best position a brand in the marketplace. Plus, hear from the design leaders from OXO, Procter & Gamble, Martha Stewart Living, Omnimedia, and more who will give you actionable ideas for fueling change and driving growth in your company. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com, or you can email direct at register at iirusa.com. If you mentioned that you heard about the event from Design Matters, you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I hope to see you April 16th to the 18th at Pier 60 at Chelsea Piers in New York City. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. 
We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Debbie, uh, Debbie Millman with Design Matters on Voice America Business. Your host is, in fact, Debbie Millman, and today we're having a conversation about David Carson. So if you want to join our conversation, if you have any questions, uh, don't forget to call the numbers 1-866-472-5790. And I believe we do actually have a caller on the line. Um, thank you for calling Design Matters. Isabel, are you there? Yes, hello. Hi, this Hi. is Isabel calling, and I have a question for Debbie, actually, not David. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's a relief. Uh, Debbie, when is your book coming out, and is it one book or two books? Um, well, I'm, I'm actually in contract to write two books, but the first book will be coming out in October, and it's called How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer, and it's going to be published by Allworth Press, and it features um, 21 interviews with... Some of the world's greatest living designers, people like Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli and Michael Beirut and Paula Scher and Emily Oberman and Bonnie Siegler and Vaughn Oliver, Peter Saville, Paul Sayer, Karen Goldberg. And the second book is um, a book that's going to be out in late spring of 2008 that's published by Rotovision, and that book is called Essential Principles of Graphic Design. And in both cases, Rodrigo Corral is, is designing those books. How exciting. Would I be able to get them through Amazon? Yes, of course. Of oh, course. good. I'm excited. Well, good luck with the showing. Good luck with your book. Thank you so much for calling. Sure. <laughs> so now we'll get back to our interview. We are um, reading the interview. Uh, that, oop, we have a ring again. Ryan, thanks so much. I'll get our producer to help us with that ring. Um, the dial tone, rather. Um, we are doing a verbatim interpretation of... The interview that I had with David Carson earlier this year for my book, and Simon Linz, the creative director at Sterling, and my very dear friend, has very, very kindly agreed to be the interviewer just uh, about an hour and a half ago. <laughs> As Debbie Norman, no less. I have to say these shoes are killing me. Well, <laughs> and mine and David's. So uh, Simon's asking the questions, and I'm answering them. As David, verbatim. A, this is a good question. How do you feel when you read negative critics of your work? I think because I'm obsessed with the work and I work so much, mostly I hear more about criticism than I actually read. The people that hate my work don't come to my lectures, so I don't get heckled or anything like that. At the time of the most criticism, I remember hearing about the controversy more than I actually read about it. When The Fragile first came out, I got a real hate letter. It went on and on and on about how much they hated the design and how horrible and unreadable the packaging was. They were really upset that the name of the band was illegible and they couldn't read the band's name while listening to the CD. I couldn't help but think that if this person was already playing the CD, they already knew what they were listening to. I thought of a few things to fire back, but ultimately I realized that what was important was the following. Number one, I had taken Trent Reznor's very personal music and very personal lyrics and visually interpreted them in a way that he was very happy with. Number two, as a designer, I was pleased with the work. I felt that I had pushed myself and had progressed and was able to present my work in a new way, and I was happy. So I never wrote back. That's it. End of the discussion. I don't care who wrote and complained. When working, you have to think about who you were trying to please. There are a lot of designers out there who are servants, and I never wanted to be in that situation. Somebody once asked me, do you ever get to do any personal work? And it threw me. All of my work is personal. Well, um, 
you know, what do you worry about? And just like in terms of life, do you worry about your future? Do you worry about your career? And um, how do you feel about the work that you're doing right now? I'm very, very comfortable with my work and what I do, and I'm happy that I was able to have some impact. I get emails from around the world daily, people telling me about how I've motivated them and changed their lives. That feels good. I'm very comfortable with my life. I don't know what I would have done better in my career. If someone says something about reinventing myself, I tell them I'm fine. I'm very comfortable with the work I do and what I do. Why were they suggesting you needed to reinvent yourself? I think it's a natural cycle of any artist, whether you're a musician or architect. I had a pretty long ride, much longer than I expected, over a good, solid decade of getting work and being in demand and being asked to lecture. I often wish I'd kept a diary, but I never thought it would keep going and get as big as it did. So do you uh, regret, regret anything? Very little. It's gone pretty well. Professionally, I regret turning down a music video early on in my career because I didn't think the band had any chance. At the time, things were getting really crazy and really busy for me. But the producers were very aggressive. They were after me to direct a music video for a new band called Bush. I designed their CD and I named them. The band flew me up to L.A. to listen to a cassette of the music, and I thought, oh, man, a grunge rip-off band about two years too late from England. There's just no way. I designed the CD, but at the time, my career was just beginning to take off, and I subsequently passed on doing the music video. And within six months, Bush had sold five zillion CDs, and they had every music video director in the world lined up to work with them. I regret that. I think if I had directed that video, it would have gotten me into moving images and, the f and film and video that much sooner. That's one of the few mistakes I think I've made. But I think as my career goes, though I still enjoy being an outsider, maybe there are places I didn't need to stay so outside. For example? Well, I've heard rumors that I'm blacklisted from the AIGA for missing some talks. <laughs> <laughs> and early on, I poked some fun at Emigre just for the heck of it. And at the time, that was sacred territory you didn't tread on. I think now, as I've gotten older, I think I could have picked some of the battles better. I think it's always time to make good on things if you feel, if you feel bad about them. That's true. I think that, uh, that Rudy and uh, Rick Graffay uh, would forgive you. Maybe even Debbie Millman will forgive you at this point. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. <laughs> so how do you see yourself in five years from now? Anything different? Anything you want in your life that you don't already have? Well, I hope I'm married, you, number one. So are you seeing anyone now? As we speak, no. I've got two kids who live with their mom. I'd love to have another kid or two. I think in five years I'll either be primarily painting or doing more film work. These, are two, dis these two disciplines really um, they intrigue me. Though I have a feeling I might end up doing some more painting because of my interest in sociology. I think I could do some interesting documentary work. That's why I went into magazine design. It was more interesting for me to read a real story about a real person or a real event and interpret it than to design a new shoebox or toothpaste container. I just wasn't drawn to that. But I didn't start out to be a magazine designer. I just wanted to be a graphic designer. I was drawn to the real stories and the real people. But people don't think of me in those terms, so now it's part of my excuse. <laughs> you know, it's funny. For the longest time, nobody called themselves graphic artists. We were all graphic designers. It was much cooler. But I've actually come around to thinking what I do is more graphic art than graphic design. I think they overlap, and labeling is a bit silly, but I'm more comfortable now saying graphic artist, even though graphic designer was always considered more hip.
graphic artist is just one step removed from commercial artist, and I think there really is a difference in the way I work and the way somebody who designs train or bus schedules work. And I think an important point is this. All of that is fine as long as you enjoy it if that's what you want to be doing. This may sound a little cliched, but in my talks to students, I always try to end with the definition of a good job. What I say is this. If money wasn't an issue for you, would you be doing the same work? If you would, you've got a great job. And if you wouldn't, what's the point? I think we're in a field that allows us to enjoy going to work and to enjoy what we're doing. We can be creative and we can make a living. There's really nothing better than that. So we're going to take a break now, readers. It's back to Debbie speaking as Debbie. I'd like to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America in a very unusual and somewhat unprecedented show. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Carrie Murnian and John Malott of Design Studio Honest. Carrie, tell us about that moment when an idea comes to you. With any kind of project, there's all these outside things that come into like your idea, how you think of an idea, who the client is, your state of mind, the business happening in your own studio. Like when all that coalesces into an idea that you know works, that's when I think it's just like is an amazing feeling. I think that's definitely the thing that got us as far as those nights when you're 12 years old and just copying comics and the whole night's gone and you've just been drawing comics all night. But you're always looking for that first fix you got when you, when you first did it. I think just that thing of now is like maybe sharing it with more people, it being more of a communal thing, I guess. When there's like 10 people working to create one specific idea and it's all flowing, it's really an amazing thing. Yeah. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Hi, I'm Ron Jaswalski of Del Monte Foods Corporation, and I'm here to invite you to attend the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design Conference this April in New York City. You might have heard of the Bad Boys of Design segment on Design Matters podcast, but now you can see it in person. The Fuse event is proud to announce their own version of the show, the Bad Boys of Brand Design, as the official kickoff to the 2007 event. Join me along with others from Colgate-Palmolive, Starbucks, Johnson & Johnson, and Georgia Pacific as we discuss how design can be aligned, leveraged, managed, and integrated the best position of brand in the marketplace. Plus, hear from the design leaders from OXO, Procter & Gamble, Martha Stewart Living, Omnimedia, and more who will give you actionable ideas for fueling change and driving growth in your company. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com, or you can email direct 
at register at iirusa.com. If you mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters, you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I hope to see you April 16th to the 18th at Pier 60 at Chelsea Piers in New York City. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.46 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and today we were supposed to have a conversation with David Carson, but unfortunately he wasn't able to join us, so we have been having a conversation about David Carson. I have been reading along with my dear friend and colleague, Creative Director at Sterling, Simon Lintz, the actual interview that I conducted with David earlier this year for my forthcoming book, and so we've read it verbatim on the air to give people an understanding of some of his thoughts about working, how he works, his process, what is important to him, what he's doing, and what he's already done. We finished the interview at the end of the last segment, and now we're going to take some questions from our audience and for some wonderful reason, the stars are all aligned today, and we have a number of callers on the line, so we're going to take them. And the first is Catherine. Catherine, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hello, Catherine. I just wanted to say that this, this Simon fellow is very good. Yes, isn't he? <laughs> yes, I think you he's have... giving you a run for your money. <laughs> you have no idea how confused I am right now. This well, is going to I be like a, a year's keep, worth of therapy. Debbie, a few things. <laughs> yeah, he has a wonderful way on the on, on the line. I really do. I, I've watched him, and he's a natural. I mean, this is the first time he's ever done anything like this. I asked him to do it about an hour and a half ago, after consulting with Joyce K about what I should do with this show, and uh, he's really risen to the occasion. So yes, I am uh, a little bit nervous about him. Uh, Taking all the fanfare. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, he's, his voice is very sexy. <laughs> well, Catherine, thank you very much for calling. And I had a question for David. Okay, let's see if we can answer it. <laughs> okay. Is he in fact blacklisted by the AIG? Well, it's kind of funny because he the reason that he gave us for canceling was that he was doing um, an AIGA event last night in Denver. And he was going to be um, actually flying during the time of this interview, so could no longer do it. So I guess I guess no. I guess the answer is he is no longer blacklisted by the AIGA. Okay, you must you must be very forgiving. Well, it, I don't live in Denver. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but it really uh, means a lot that you called in. We we need a lot of support today. So thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you, Catherine. So we have another caller. I believe that we have Gregory on the line. Gregory, thank you for coming out and calling today. It's not really Gregory. Oh, who's this? Um, oh, Sarah. I know this voice. This is Sarah. Sarah from New York. Thank you for calling. Yeah, I'm pretending to be Gregory while y'all <laughs> David there. Okay, well, how are you today, I figured Sarah? if he wasn't going to call in, I could call in for him. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I, I just want to say, like, with uh, David's work and stuff, I, I've never had a problem with any of it. I, in fact, I think I own all of his books and everything. Uh, but, you know, I've been out of school now just, like, three or four years, I think. And 
this is, I think, the third time he's bailed on something that I know about, like that I've, uh, that, that, that I was uh, supposed to, you know, attend or listen to or, 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 or what have you. But I was just wondering, and I know this is probably not politically correct or whatever, but I'm not really that politically correct, but uh, at what point did people just stop inviting him to speak? Uh, or to or to show up. I mean, do you honestly think that you know his work is is uh, has had that big of an impact that that you would be willing to say, you know, yeah, could you maybe show up this time uh, to talk to our listeners? Do you, do you honestly feel that his his stuff is is worth that? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think it's it's uh, it's a hard one. I actually didn't originally invite David to do the show. He actually asked me if he could be on the show, and I was delighted and thrilled and honored to uh, even get a request from him in that regard. Um, so, of course, I, I said yes. I mean, I, I think I'd have been silly not to say yes, although I was sure. somewhat concerned because I do know that there have been other times where he's been asked to uh, participate in conferences and whatnot and, and um, hasn't, hasn't been able to make it. Um, so I, having the um, interview was, having already done the interview with him was somewhat serendipitous for me in that I felt like at least I had some backup rather than just um, replay my Milton or Michael or Emily um, podcasts, which are three of my favorites, um, which I would certainly do anyway, but um, wanted to, after having publicized the, the interview as much as I have and only finding out just a, a short while ago, I felt like I needed to do something original for my, my listeners that wouldn't piss them off as much as I was. <laughs> sure, sure. No, I, I just, um, I don't know. I, I just think that it's a little ridiculous. You know, if you have people like Milton Glaser and Stefan Sagmeister who, you know, are, are just as accomplished and stuff and they could take the time to show up and, and do what they said they were going to do, it doesn't make any sense that he couldn't do the same. Well, you know, I guess everybody has their priorities. I have some sympathy, I have to have to admit. I just know from uh, like working through every sort of every day of the week, there's always times when your schedule changes and you just, you, you, I, 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 I miss appointments all the time, not through my own fault, but other appointments run over, planes run late. So... I do have sympathy. It's, it's unfortunate when there's lots of people listening and wanting to hear somebody speak, you know, not to be able to show up. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, I hope that people are tolerant when, when I do it, and I try to be tolerant when other people do it to me. Sure. Well, thank you so much for calling, Sarah. It's wonderful to have you join us on the show today. All right, no problem. Thanks. And I know I think we have another caller um, on the line. I believe we have Jen. Is that true, Jen? Jennifer. Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Jennifer, if you have the time. Jennifer, we have the time. Um, your show is so much fun today. <laughs> well, I don't it's know. It's a little con gender confusing. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> Depends on how you define fun. <laughs> um, well, I have a question for um, Debbie. I was just curious um, what other designers you're going to be featuring in your book and how you picked them and, and how some of those interviews differ from the ones um, that you did with David Carson? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, let's see. Well, they differ in that they're all face-to-face. -face. They're all completely one-on-one, um, -on -one. Uh, no, no other uh, 
questions from listeners. Um, I think that they are um, longer. There's no commercial breaks. <laughs> so I think that in that regard, there's a certain intimacy that is uh, able to build over the course of the interview. Um, the complete list, um, Milton Glaser, Michael Beirut, Seymour Quas, James Victoria, Jessica Helfand, Karen Goldberg, Paula Scher, Stefan Sagmeister, Steph Geisbuehler, John Maida, Lucille Tanasis, Emily Oberman, and Bonnie Siegler. These are all in your in your book or yes. on your show? On the book, in the book. Oh, Abbott wow. Miller, Masig Mugnelli, Von Oliver, Stephen Doyle, Paul Sayre, Chip Kidd, uh, Peter Saville, Neville Brody, and uh, David. So that is the complete list. Sounds like and a must-have lineup. A well, must-have book. Uh, hopefully, but I think it, the interesting thing about it is that I think that it shows the humanity in, in all of these extraordinary designers. Some things they have in common, some ways that they they think differently, but all truly um, authentic and from the heart interviews. So that's the part that, for me, I, I love, and also what I hope would be similar to that of the um, interviews on Design Matters. Well, I can't wait for it to come out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Simon. Thanks. Thank you for calling. Bye. Bye. Well, we have uh, come to the end of our broadcast. It has been a very unusual and, as I said, unprecedented broadcast for us at Design Matters. I want to thank my producers, Ryan and Ruben, for their infinite patience, especially with our introductory monologue, which was really a more of a, a performance piece, <laughs> and it's certainly not a monologue, as it was not just one voice. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Simon Lintz for stepping in You're as my co-host at, at the very last minute. Uh, very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week on Design Matters, which will be a real one-on-one -on -one interview, is Jacob Trollback. Simon Lintz wants to join us. He's pointing at himself, no, saying, no. please, let me do it with you, please. No, I wasn't saying that. <laughs> I just I wanted to say thank you to everyone who's listening to uh, Voice America Business for just for bearing with us and actually following the plot. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for listening. And please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all the callers today. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you and Jacob Charles back next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.